the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, a good Monday to you, my friends. For reasons I cannot figure out, the weeks have gone very fast in the lockdown. They say that time flies when you're having a good time. It's not a good time. And for some reason, I do believe that they have been flying. Be that as it may, I want to get to my guest immediately. My guest is uh, in that rarefied realm of he needs no introduction. But I should tell you, he's co-founder of The Daily Wire, and I want you to know, I want him to know, I am a paid subscriber. I did not call up Ben and say, Ben, you want to to give me a free password? I wanted you to know that, Ben. Wow, good for you, Dennis. I mean, first of all, we should have given you a free pass, so that is dereliction on our part. Oh, that's funny. I really appreciate the sentiment. No, I, I, in all seriousness, I, 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 don't, I don't like getting things for free, and Daily Wire is worth it, and I want, I want to let all my, uh, my listeners know that. I think you, well, I, you, you I, can never be a Democrat then if you don't like getting things for free, sir. What a, you know what? That's exactly right. Okay, that's really all we needed. <laughs> you pretty much summarized the human condition in America at any rate at this point. Ben has a brand new book out, which I am in the middle of, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. It's a depressing title. <laughs> Would you agree to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, but uh, as we all know, bad news sells better than, uh, than good news. So fortunately for me, uh, there's a lot of bad news out there, unfortunately for the country, and unfortunately for me as a citizen. And I will say that when I, when I wrote it, uh, I thought that, you know, things were not great in America. This is December, January. And then when the pandemic hit, I thought, okay, well, we, you know, we should be able to come together around, you know, a giant disease that is killing a lot of people. And now I feel like the book is uh, kind of half prophecy, unfortunately. I wish, I wish it weren't. That's correct. So are you actually surprised at the disunity even now? Uh, you know, I, I will say I am surprised at the extent of it. Uh, I, I thought that what I was talking about in the book was something that was simmering very barely under the surface. But the fact that it's broken out in such obvious and clear ways about every single thing, that is astonishing to me. I mean, I, I did not think that there was a way that you could polarize politics around a pandemic. And yet we've somehow managed to do it. Mainly the media have managed to do it by ignoring all data and all evidence. It's pretty insane. And then when you have people literally riding and looting in the streets over nothing, tearing down statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Frederick Douglass, I figured, okay, well, at least that we should be able to get around and, and say, you know, that's probably a bad idea. Nope. So the extent to which this is this is really the, the sense that America is on the wrong track and that we are in serious trouble, that is a serious sense held by a, a wide variety of people. That may be the only thing we have in common is the belief that maybe we shouldn't, shouldn't share the country together anymore. And that's that's the most dangerous thing. I mean, I talk in the book about 
the difference between not left and right, but unionism and disintegrationism, unionism being, I believe that the union should actually maintain, we should share a country together, and disintegrationism being the belief that we have nothing that binds us, that effectively we should fall apart. And it seems like the disintegrationists are, are pretty clearly winning at this point in time. That's right. That's exactly, uh, as my listeners know, what I what I suspect. You're much younger than I. D- how do you psychologically react to the possibility of of a dark future for this country? Um, you know, all I can say is that the fight doesn't stop being worth fighting, even if the future doesn't look good. I'll, I'll say there's one point of a couple points of hope. One is. Other countries have gone through these sort of crises where it seems like they lose their thread and start eating themselves. This actually happened to Israel uh, in the post-Zionist part of the part of its history, probably between Oslo and maybe the mid 2000s. And then it turns out that Israel was sort of jogged back into reality by the fact that there are existential enemies who wanted to destroy it, and suddenly all of Israel, including the left, is center right. Like the left just doesn't exist there anymore. Reality has a way of clubbing people back into uh, into some semblance of uh, sanity. So there's that possibility, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to go through a real ugly period here. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can either pull ourselves out by our bootstraps by relearning what it was that was supposed to unify us. I mean, the book really isn't just supposed to be me complaining about what's going on in the country. It really is supposed to be a one-stop shop as a, as a sort of prophylactic against what's happening. It's really a re-education in the stuff that's supposed to tie us together, and I'm hopeful that there are some liberals, not leftists, is a distinction you always make, Dennis, and, and I, frankly, I think I learned it from you, the distinction between left and liberal. I think there are some liberals out there who still agree with some of the fundamental principles of the book. If they don't make common cause with conservatives, then the country is in for a very, very dark future. I think the possibility of a common cause is still in the offing, but that's going to require a a simple mind shift, and it's going to require a lot of people who are liberals to get beyond the simple Trump of it all. So many of them have become obsessed with the idea that Trump is the be-all, end-all in politics. He's the big bang of politics. That They're failing to recognize that whatever you think of Trump, Trump is a symptom of the times we live in. He is not the cause. He certainly is not the cause. Talking about that, what do you foresee, and I don't like to ask predictive questions, but it it has to be asked, what do you foresee if uh, the Democrats win the presidency and add to that uh, Congress? Well, I I think that things will get quite ugly quite quickly in a couple of ways. In one way, there will be an alleviation. I think that the media will immediately stop talking about COVID. I think the riots will basically stop. Because I think what we're watching right now is the sort of pressure politics that Democrats brought to bear in the 60s. In the 60s, Democrats across the country, mayors like John Lindsay in New York, people like, like Marion Barry, they actually pushed the idea that riots were good public policy because you could force law-abiding citizens to do stuff they otherwise wouldn't by essentially threatening them. Uh, and so I think that if Democrats take power nationally, then they will have achieved their goal right now, which is getting rid of Trump. Uh, I, I think that you will see people stop talking about COVID because the great lie here is that Trump has completely botched COVID and every place else has done great. So Andrew Cuomo just doesn't exist in this vision of the world. Italy and Spain don't exist. The second wave that's currently happening in France doesn't exist in this vision of the world. So I think the media will have achieved its goal and they will simply allow COVID to sort of fade into the background if Biden is elected. That's, you know, that may be stupid and awful and, and dishonest, but at least, you know, there'll be some semblance of normalcy that is, that is returned. Where things will get really ugly is in terms of policy. So Democrats are going to completely remake American foreign policy. They're going to cut the military again. They're going to retreat on the world stage from China. They're going to try to sign another nuclear deal with the evil Iranian government. And domestically, I think you're going to watch a serious threat to a wide variety of American rights. Particularly, I'm concerned about religious liberty. It's pretty obvious that a Biden administration would target, target religious liberty federally and suggest that 
nonprofit status ought to be removed for churches and synagogues that refuse to abide by social justice activism, ranging from same-sex marriage to transgenderism. I think he'll threaten gun rights. I think that there will be a move to curb free speech rights. Uh, I think you'll start to see a state and local move by Democrats as more and more judges are appointed to curb free speech by citing diversity and citing uh, anti-discrimination law. I think that you'll see the Democrats radically raise taxes and regulations, which will really hamper any sort of economic recovery in this very dark time. The, again, the one piece of optimism I have here is that if, if American politics shows us one, one thing, it's that politicians, after winning, tend to believe there's a mandate for their policies, and generally that's not true. Generally, the reason the politicians win is because people don't like the other guy. And so if, if Biden wins and if Democrats sweep into Congress, I think they're going to overreach, and I think within two years Republicans will be in charge of Congress again. And the reason I say this is because this is exactly what Barack Obama did in 2008. He overreached with the stimulus package. He overreached with cash for clunkers. He overreached with, with the bailouts, and then he overreached with Obamacare. And within two years, Republicans had retaken the House of Representatives. So I, I think that there's a, a pattern to that. I think that Biden is likely to try and interpret a victory for him as a, as a sort of endorsement of a Bernie Sanders platform. I think that's idiotic. I think it's wrong. And I think there will be a backlash to it. The book that Ben Shapiro has just written just out, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, and I'm in the middle of it, and what it does so well, it, it explains America. I mean, it's really important. Uh, I... I have to say, I think that, uh, like, separation of powers, okay, something obviously you mentioned. Uh, I'll, uh, how many uh, 12th graders can define that term? I mean, nearly none, I would assume. And more importantly, even if they can define the term, they don't understand why it exists. And what, what folks have failed to recognize, and, and Dennis, you've done yeoman's work in trying to remind people of it in, in books like, you're on talking about the American Trinity and, and you know, basic principles of Americanism is that the Declaration of the Constitution work not because in a utilitarian fashion they work, they work because they're founded on truths about human nature. And that is why also they are good, because they're founded on truths about human nature and how to vitiate the sinfulness of human nature as it impacts other people. The, the point of separation of powers is, of course, as the founders sought, to curb the excesses of man, because if one person has too much power, men can be angel, men are not angels, men are not devils, it's a Federalist 51, by Madison, and so you have to check and balance people so that they aren't able to simply run roughshod over other people. The left believes that human beings are innately malleable, and so if you get rid of capitalism and you put in a new system, great men will come to the fore who are innately incapable of sin, and then they can rule from above without any checks and balances. In fact, checks and balances prevent us from reaching this utopian world. So even if people understand why that checks and balances do exist, they don't understand why it should exist. Increasingly, by the way, this is true even for people on the right. You sort of understand what checks and balances are. But then, All right, hold on. We're going to want to tell everybody the book, How to Destroy American Three Easy Steps. It is up at DennisPrager.com. President Trump really wants to give you a signed 2020 Make America Great Again hat. He wants to make sure the lucky winner is one of his top supporters. Be sure to enter soon because this is an opportunity you don't want to miss. This offer is only going to a select group of supporters and you're one of them. All you have to do is text Prager to 88022-8822 today for your chance to win a signed 2020 Make America Great Again hat. P-R-A-G-E-R Prager to 88022. Join President Trump in the fight to keep America great for four more years. Paid for by Donald J. Trump for President Incorporated. All right, my friends, Ben Shapiro. Yes, the Ben Shapiro. How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. 
is his book about the disintegrationists and the unionists. That's the way he, those are his terms for left and right, as it were. Is that correct? Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. I mean, I would say that there are some people sort of on the alt-right or the radical right who who also think that the country is steeped in racism and and think that the country should fall apart because of it. So I've tried to eschew the terms left and right here specifically because I think too many liberals don't understand the difference that you always make between liberal and left. Uh, and instead, I've used unionists and disintegrationists to hopefully provide a common point to rally around in spite right. of labels that people that, tend that, to use. That's the hope of your book. Uh, the, I got that clearly. That uh, the the better the the better angels, as you put it, uh, will prevail. I have a question that you will, uh, I think, surprise you because I know you think I'm bright. <laughs> so <laughs> I am going to confess to you ignorance on something so basic to the American founding. And I have to tell you, a lifetime of reading about it, including in your book, and you're clear, I still don't understand natural law. Okay. (laughs) So the basic idea of natural law is that discoverable in the human condition are are certain laws that you can discern just from the way that nature works. So Aristotle, and mostly Aristotle, but Plato also talks a little bit about the idea of natural laws existing in the universe and the teleology of things. So, for example, Aristotle talks about the difference between good and bad, not lying in a moral distinction between good and bad, but in the usefulness of an, uh, the, the proper use of a thing. So, for example, if you see a spoon, a good spoon is a spoon that holds soup. A bad spoon is a, soup, is a spoon that does not hold soup. A good person, says Aristotle, is a person who is capable of reasoning, right, because a person is made to reason. And so a person who reasons properly is doing something that is good. A person who reasons improperly is doing something that is unfit. In the same way, when you look at the universe and you look at rules that are, that are made for the universe, there are rules that, that adhere to human nature. Those are natural laws that we work in accordance with. And then there are rules that run against human nature, and those are rules that we do not, that, that, that cut against the ability of human beings to operate in accordance with reason. The natural law, according to the ancients, was really about the effectuation of reason in the world, right? That you can look at the world around, you can discern certain rules certain that, that apply. And in, in the modern world, we tend to think of this as science, right, like gravity. But in the ancient world, they thought of this in terms of certain laws that apply to human nature that, when followed, make life better, and that also are, are discernible from just the nature of man and the world around him. So if you, first of all, I want everybody to know why I'm asking it, because this, is a, this played a real role in the founding. Uh, what is it? Uh, nature and, and nature's God, correct? Right. The, that's in the Declaration so they, of Independence. Right. So the founders were, were big believers in the natural law and natural rights that, that kind of spring there. From natural law precedes natural rights in philosophy. So Aristotle talks about natural law. He never talks about natural rights. Natural rights are a much later outgrowth. And, and that really comes when people recognize that natural law means that individuals are sovereign. And so as an aspect of natural law, you know, the way that human beings rationally interact with the world, there are certain rights that adhere to you as a, as a member of society and as an individual. It really becomes clear to people that you need natural rights, not just natural law, because there are a lot of tyrannies that use natural law in order to effectuate tyranny. There are theocracies that say natural law is following the Bible. and therefore Is natural the law morality without theology? Yes, I think that's fair, yes. And so the, the 
Right. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, And so the addition of rights to that is kind of an interesting amalgam because morality really doesn't tend to talk about rights very much. Morality is about what you should do. Rights are about what you can do, and they occupy kind of different spaces. The reason that they burst into Western history is really in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War when a bunch of places that acknowledge morality, but different types of religious morality say, okay, yeah, but if we're going to live together, we're, al- we're also going to have to recognize that we have a right to disagree on certain aspects of how we worship, for example. The, the, the birth of natural rights really doesn't happen in sort of its full flowering until, for example, Hugo Grotius, who's the first person to use the idea of natural rights, starts talking about this in the, in the 16th century, and then that starts to take on a life of its own, that you have rights as Englishmen, well, well, uh, so rights as citizens. Let me tell you part of the problem I've, I've had my whole life is that I? It's an odd name because you can't learn. I don't think you could learn anything about right and wrong from nature. Right. So this is a this is a struggle that Leo Strauss famously had. You know, sort of reason versus revelation. And I talk about this actually in my last book, Rights Out of History. The 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 fact is that what the founders did with that is they said sort of what Maimonides actually says, which is there are, so there are certain laws that are sort of common that you see across societies, like don't kill each other. Like, that's fairly common across societies, including primitive societies. Now, they only apply it to members of the tribe. The universalization of that law requires something broader. Usually people say, don't murder somebody inside our tribe, but if you, you know, go murder the neighbors, that's okay. Um, But the the universalization requires something broader, which is why what the Founding Fathers really did, the story of the West is not just the story of Greece or Rome, you know, Athens. The story of the West is the application of biblical principle along with reason. And so what you see in Aquinas, what you see in Maimonides, is the idea that there is a, and this is something you agree with, Dennis, there is a reason to God's commandments that is discoverable in general by humans. That it is not just a series of, the word in Hebrew would be chukim, it's not just a series of rational, rationality-free commands, that when you look at God's law, it actually makes a lot of sense. And so what Maimonides sort of suggests, and Aquinas does too, is that there is no conflict between natural law and biblical law, and that and that's why Aquinas essentially says that Plato and Aristotle came very close to mimicking the morality of the Bible just through use of pure reason, but they couldn't get fully there because you still require revelation. Okay. All right. Uh, the reason I asked it is because I think I, I, I represent a lot of my listeners who've heard the term all their lives and are not uh, all that clear on it either. All right. Anyway, if you had the ability to speak... Uh, to every young person in America, what would you say with regard to the next election? What I would say is that the character of the of the of the presidential candidates is not code for what they represent. Right now, I think there's a great conflict in, in the view of President Trump. And the view of President Trump, on the one hand, people on the left they they point to the fact that he's vulgar, and then he says things on Twitter they don't like. Uh, and the fact that, you know, all the things that we already know about President Trump and, and his flaws. And they say, why should somebody like that be president? And people on the right say, because they're stopping people on the left, right? That what Trump really is, what he represents more than anything, is, uh, is a dam against the encroaching waves that are going to swamp society if Democrats were to take complete power and move toward, and move toward that. The battle in the election, and Dennis is something you've been saying for a really long time, is very rarely about the candidate themselves. It's about the movement that they represent or the philosophies that they represent. And so if you're going to make an intelligent choice about who you want to be president, you should be making that choice not on the basis of Trump's vicissitudes or Joe Biden's senility. You should be making a choice on the basis of who you think the idea is represented 
by the movements that are backing these folks. Okay, hold on there, and let's. I want to continue with it. His book, Ben Shapiro's book, How to Destroy American Three Easy Steps, is up at DennisPrager.com. The Dennis Prager Show. Hello, everybody. Final segment on this book. It's an important book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Ben Shapiro. So, uh, shall I go on, or do you have more that you would want to say to young people about this election? Uh, I mean, the, the only other thing I would say is that if you believe that America needs to be remade, you're being deeply ungrateful in the greatest society ever devised by man, and you should probably vote Democrat. That's correct. It's astonishing that people don't understand how good this country is. That's my theory, I, I by the way. I say the left hates America not because it's bad, but because it's good. There's a tremendous... Uh, well, Go on. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that what, what the left sees is that the institutions of the United States have generated more wealth, prosperity, tolerance, decency, than any other institutions, save for maybe churches and, and synagogues and, and mosques, in, in the history of mankind. In the history of mankind. And the, and the left's response to this is that they don't like the system itself because the system itself is not the utopian redistribution of system they wish for, and so they simply wish onto the system all of the flaws that they perceive. They, they treat every flaw in the United States as though it is unique, and they treat everything exceptional about the United States as though it is common, when precisely the opposite is the truth. Everything exceptional about the United States is, in fact, exceptional, and everything that is flawed about the United States tends to be rather universal in human nature. And the history of the United States shows this, as does the current factor that, that other countries exist in the world, the utter myopia of people who suggest that problems in the United States are unique to the United States without even like taking a look at other countries around the world is astonishing. The last minute of what you said, I would like to replay on a, on a regular basis on my show. What is exceptional about America they think is normal, and what is flawed about America they think is exceptional. That is exactly right. The ignorance is, uh, is, is amazing. Do you have, uh, I always ask this of conservative Jews and conservative blacks, in your extended family, uh, is it mostly conservative? No, <laughs> of course not. Of course not. And Jewish Dennis, you know the answer to this. If uh, we're the only Orthodox Jews in our extended family, uh, and so that means that virtually everybody else in our family votes Democrat. Do you ever have discussions or you try to tone it down? Uh, it, it's kind of purposeless. I mean, it, 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 if, you, if you wish to have, you know, relationships with, with relatives, typically, uh, there are only a couple of ways to do it. One is some of them are open and actually want to have discussions and actually care. And the other is that they're looking for a fight. And so it's better to just, well, you can't even watch football anymore. So basically, you just go in the other room and stare at the walls and eat turkey on Thanksgiving. So that's th- those are really the two choices. And uh, in my family, we, we seem to have opted for the latter, I would say, for the most part. Right. I totally get it. So are you going to watch football? Uh, no, I have no. By the way, it's killing baseball's killing me. It's just killing me. I'm a huge baseball fan, as you know, Dennis. I mean, I like I wrote a book with my dad on the 2005 Chicago White Sox championship season, and the and the idea that I'm supposed to participate in what is essentially a communal ritual in which we talk about how America is systemically racist, as demonstrated by a Morgan Freeman video on empathy, and an, and a bunch of extraordinarily wealthy, largely diverse young people 
playing sport for millions of dollars. And we're supposed to talk about how America is terrible and hear from, from a major corporate organization that derives its money from a huge swath of the American public in a free country. Uh, I'm going to go no on that, and I'll wait until baseball gets a 10 on straight before I, before I watch again. I think that it, it's come to the point where I would love nothing better than to ignore the politics of baseball and just watch baseball, but they're making it impossible That's to ignore right. it. I mean, That's the problem. Slogans on the mound, for goodness sake. Yes, on the mound. All right, Ben, keep fighting. We need you. How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps is his book. It's up at DennisPrager.com. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for all you do. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. That's correct. At the at the root of the problem is naivete. Naivete is a big sin. It's a sin to be naive when you're an adult. When you're fifteen, you shouldn't be naive at fifteen. One of the reasons I develop differently there's no doubt in my mind, is such an awareness of human evil. First and foremost, I knew so much about the Holocaust at a very early age. So I was already grateful, wow, America's not like that. Then I learned a massive amount about communism. That was my field of study. Tens and tens of millions of people, non-soldiers, non-war, slaughtered. Whole societies enslaved. And then I am I I'm gonna to try to transform America? That beacon of hope in this dark world? Shame on the left. Shame on all of you. Hi everybody, that's what you have to tell your Tell your Democratic children, you don't understand how good America is. They don't. I am watching the the best country. There's just no knock on other countries. They all know that America has been the beacon of liberty. Whatever they say, everybody knows it. They all know that they depend on America not to be invaded by Russia in Europe, not to be invaded by China in East Asia, not to be taken over by Iran in the Middle East. This is all depending on America. In Hong Kong, in, in the demonstrations for liberty, they didn't, they didn't wave any flag but the American flag. This will stop if the Democrats win. They don't care about liberty. It's so painful to me that people that that I love, thank God, not my immediate family, that would be, it would actually be painful to me. Um, I have really good shock absorbers. If my kids were leftists, it, it, would, be a, it would be a blow because I, I would know they joined a cult. How, how would you feel if your kids joined a cult? Terrible, right? The left is a cult. It's the biggest cult in American history. That's why they sever relations often with parents. That's why they ostracize anyone who deviates. That's why it's it's based completely on faith. 
Everything is a faith statement. America is racist, systemically racist, a faith statement. It's not empirically true. There was a piece about hydroxychloroquine in, in Newsweek by a, a major Yale epidemiologist who basically says that uh, thousands are dying because of the political op- opposition to hydroxychloroquine and zinc. My, uh, in my view, the doctors who opposed hydroxychloroquine, the governors who opposed it, will have blood on their hands. I mean serious blood. I don't talk that way. They will be the reason that vast numbers of people died of COVID who could have been saved. If it's used in the first five days with zinc and azithromycin, in the vast, vast, overwhelming majority of cases, people will be saved. You know why India, people are packed together in, in poor sanitation very often, and you have relatively few deaths because of the vast, widespread use of hydroxychloroquine. You have blood on your hands, doctors who oppose this. You understand? You have violated the Hippocratic Oath by opposing hydroxychloroquine. First, do no harm. You're doing harm. You know damn well it's perfectly safe. If it's just a placebo, you shouldn't oppose it. <laughs> you you should uh, you should read the, the comments. On the, the Newsweek article, what's happening to Newsweek that it publishes such disinformation? That disinformation was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and and the Lancet. That's where the, that's where that that came from. I touted this from the very beginning. You don't have to be an epidemiologist to have logic. When doctors keep using it and it keeps working, then you use it! Is that clear? Why is that clear? You have a loved one with COVID? You, uh, you need to get it. It's a very powerful piece in uh, Newsweek. <laughs> and... I will read the parts of it to you. In the meantime, here's, here's important news. The Harvard University Board of Overseers is under pressure to alter its name due to the term having ties to slavery. Oh, you didn't get it in the beginning. Wow. You are not woke. The coalition, do you know what all this proves? I told you, all of this proves how little racism there is in America. When you have to fight Uncle Ben, Aunt Jemima, Board of Overseers, a master's, uh, master bedroom, do you understand? It proves, it proves how little racism there is in the country because they're preoccupied with nonsense. The Board of Overseers, oh my God. 
the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard, is calling for the board to drop the title overseer, as the term was also used to refer to individuals who managed plantations. The alumni organization Harvard Forward brought attention to the Board of Overseers' name in a series of tweets. Boy, is that misnamed. It should be named Harvard Backward. Today, on the 237th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts, we join the Harvard Diverse Coalition in calling to hashtag rename the overseers. Harvard Forward tweeted on July 8th. The continued use of a word characterized by such deep-seated racism is a testament to Harvard's failure to confront our country's history. In June, the University of Louisville scrapped the title overseer from its student government bodies, saying the term harkens back to American slavery and reminds us of the brutality of the conditions and treatment of black people during that time. The Dennis Prager Show. Hey, I just want to remind you, there are a lot of great calls, so don't hang up even when we get to the end of the hour. There are a lot of calls here. Some I won't be able to take, but uh, you stay on. Uh, Let's go to Nell in uh, Mountain Home, Arkansas. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I I have three children. They're all adults, and you know it's they're all liberal. I I, I don't get it. Uh, my oldest one, um, brilliant man. He's a brilliant man, and uh, I don't understand why someone with such good logic can be so taken by this stuff. I don't get it. Where did he go to college? Uh, He went online. All three of them got online degrees. Fascinating. And uh, are they liberal or left? Yes. (laughs) They're they're liberal or left. Is good. Marxism, you know, I mean, wait, my son, Mar- Marxism is good, who, is that what you said? Yeah, that's what he says, you know, that I just don't understand communism. Wow. I think I do. I think, and, I think you know, so. we have talks, and I am not a great debater. I, I am the first to admit I am not a great debater. Ask him to and, see my, I am a great debater. Ask him to see my five minute video. Just ask him for five minutes. Why don't people hate communism as much as Nazism? It's a Prager you. You don't understand communism. That to me is as morally defective as a kid saying to a parent, you don't understand Nazism. It's not that bad. To grow up in America... And to say that, it shows you how defective the education is in, in, our, in our schools. But if this has been my, true my whole life. The people don't know what communism has done. 
over a hundred million people and, a, and billions enslaved. That's all. The Dennis Prager Show, live from the Relief Factor Pain Free Studio. 